Hi, I'm Peter Rao. And I'm Mike Duran. Welcome back to Counterbalance. Mike, it's not every week that we get to interview a presidential candidate, but this week we are joined by Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota. Governor Burgum was elected in 2016 as the 33rd governor of North Dakota, and uh, he's out there running for president. He's born and raised in the small town of Arthur, North Dakota. And I think as you'll find in the discussion, like any North Dakotan, he knows a lot about energy and a lot more about foreign policy and national security than you might think. I look forward to this. Let's jump into the episode. Governor Burgum, welcome to Counterbalance. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you, Peter, Michael. When I think of uh, North Dakota and national security, the issue that most comes to mind is, of course, energy. I don't know if this is the motivating factor for your presidential campaign, but on day one of taking office, President Biden famously issued uh, a regulatory order effectively killing the permitting for the Keystone XL pipeline. Can you tell us a little bit about North Dakota energy and uh, and the ties to national security to get us going? Well, ha- happily to do that. But I, when we announced our run for the president on June 7th, we said, hey, there's three topics we're going to talk about on every stop. That's the economy, it's energy, and national security. Well, why those three? Well, those three, because they're the things that matter the most to the future of our country, but they're also completely intertwined. I mean, you can go back to World War II and battles before that, and we've been fighting over economies, and we've been fighting over energy, and we're still having those fights now, but a lot of folks aren't connecting them. Uh, you mentioned the the Keystone XL didn't directly affect North Dakota because it bypassed us, but when I, when I took office, had a similar uh, battle going on because when I took office in 2016, after 30 plus years in the private sector, there was 10,000 people uh, camping illegally and protesting illegally on federal land over the Dakota Access Pipeline. So I'm I'm fully fully schooled on pipeline protests and how uh, they're they're grounded in ideology, not in either in economics nor in the environment, because we've got 38,000 pipeline crossings where pipelines in America pass and cross water bodies. And today, ones like the Dakota Access Pipeline you know, are horizontally direct drilled 93 feet below the base of the river. These are the safest crossings that have ever been built. I, I mean, one thing I just sort of said facetiously, hey, when, can we move the protest to some 1950s pipeline in America <laughs> and protest there? Uh, and, and, and of course, the idea that somehow that the Biden is, was, was really playing to his base on day one, like that was the most urgent thing he had to do was actually strike down a legally permitted private sector capital project that was going to increase American energy security. And I've talked to the people that built that pipeline, the Keystone XL, and I said, please, if you have an opportunity to finish this someday or rebuild it, please rename it the U.S. Energy Security Pipeline so that when there's a protest against it, that they'll be protesting the U.S. Energy Security Pipeline. Because when you restrict supply, what the Biden administration tries to do with drilling permits, uh, with 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 their regulatory regime, everything they're doing, they're trying to they're trying to kill U.S. energy production. When you kill that supply, you do not at all reduce demand. The demand still resides there. Where does the demand get filled? The demand gets filled from places that our own State Department has gone to and asked them to produce more energy, like Venezuela or like OPEC countries. And so, and guess what? They don't produce it as cleanly as we do. So whenever we kill U.S. energy, we're not only driving inflation, destabilizing the world, empowering dictators. 
We're actually not helping on the Biden supposed agenda, which is to you know save the planet because we do it cleaner, better, and safer than anyone else. So this is one of the reasons why we're running because we're on the tip of the spear. We see it in North Dakota. We produce more energy in North Dakota than most OPEC nations, and we are under assault at the state level and at the company level, and that you know affects everything, affects our schools, our roads, our healthcare, everything, because it's basically they're attacking our economy, and our economy is making, you know, it's driving in, when North Dakota and other energy states produce American energy, drives inflation down, it improves the environment, it helps our economy, and it's we stop empowering dictators like Putin, or now what we're seeing with Iran, you know, making and, bank on and, selling and, energy, and, and it's better for poor people. It's it's better for national security. Better for poor people. I, I, I don't understand. I, I literally... What I, happened I really, to foreign policy for the middle class, right? Which yeah, exactly. What happened to foreign policy for the middle class, but also the argument for American energy was so strong and the and the, the example that was set on, in the Trump administration of what you can do with a robust energy s- sector was so, so overwhelming. Why is it that... Why is it that there's such support for this agenda? I, for I the did, for the agenda against against American energy. Well, I, I think it it starts with uh, there's been a full on assault, and it starts with younger people and, and young people, universities, and uh, and the Democratic Party, where they basically said the devil element on the periodic table is carbon, yeah. and this is the enemy. You know, it's it's it is the existential threat, and it's not the threat isn't isn't the isn't co2 the threat is the biden energy policies those are the things that are actually the threat to the that's what's causing that's what is actually literally destabilizing the world putin does not invade ukraine if he hadn't succeeded in getting all the western europe you know completely hooked on his source of energy but it's not like there aren't very serious economic interests political interests and and moral interests that are served by american energy so how come how come the the pro energy propaganda is so weak in comparison to the where where's our side is what i'm asking well it's a good good question and uh, certainly something that we fight for every day because and i'm i'm someone that approaches everything out of curiosity i've got a lens towards uh, you know what's good for the american people but under, you know can i understand the economics can i understand how does it affect the environment i'm a systems thinker and i don't have an answer to your question uh, other other than it's politics they've got a voter base that they play to right but the idea that if if you want to build infrastructure and innovation in any industry You've got to have a stable tax and regulatory environment. What is more unstable than having a president by executive order strike down a private sector? Pro- what, what if it was, what if it was a real estate project? And on the first day, I'm doing an executive order, and I'm going to shut this thing down because uh, my base wants me to do it. It, it would it, that it, that when you do that, that's an attack on capitalism. It's an attack on free markets. It's an attack on everything that we've done to actually have the innovation which has enabled us. Because America, with our energy production, our technology advancements, our free markets, we have lifted a billion people out of poverty around the world. And when, when, the, when our allies are safe and prosperous, then Americans are safe and prosperous. You're talking about the middle class. I mean, we need to make sure that people understand that when, we're, when we can succeed in our economic approach, our approach to innovation, not regulation, when we do that, it's good for everybody. It's certainly good for Americans. So much of foreign policy is made, obviously, in Washington, D.C. It's a federal responsibility. It's an Article II presidential power. And uh, oftentimes, the foreign policy debates are, from the very get-go, crafted, thought about, developed, and implemented 
in these narrow coastal corridors, Washington up to New York, I suppose on the West Coast is some of this as well. You grew up uh, and were born in Arthur, South Dakota, a small town. You've spent your whole life, or sorry, North Dakota. You've spent your whole life uh, as a resident of North Dakota. Uh, how would you describe sort of the middle American sensibility on foreign policy and national security? What is there, what is kind of the, the basic American attitude as you see it in the Midwest and outside of kind of the, the, the coastal areas where a lot of this stuff is, is discussed? Well, I think that part of the uh, the arrogance that comes with from some of the coastal elites is that somehow if you're in middle America, that you don't pay any attention to the you know the really important stuff. Trust me, ask a farmer in North Dakota the price of soybeans in Brazil, they're going to know. Mm. I mean, they're competing in world markets. Our farmers are competing in global markets. Energy producers, people that work in the energy fields, the hardworking people that are going to work every day to power America, they understand they're competing in a global market. And so when you're competing in these global markets, then interruptions to the global markets matter. These international events matter. Crisis matter. War matters. Tariffs matter. And then sometimes they become the victim in all this because if you you know get in a battle and say, hey, we're going to put you know, tariffs back and forth with another country and, you know, all of a sudden China can't buy U.S. soybeans? Well, great. They just buy them from Brazil and price goes down here. Oh, we'll make it up to you later. We'll take some of the tariff money and write you a check. You know, they, they are very astute about what's going on and, and, they, and they think it's important because they know that we have an opportunity to feed and fuel the world. And we have an opportunity to feed and fuel our allies. But we've had under the Biden administration, we basically have the opposite. I mean, under a Bergam administration, when I'm your president, we'll be selling energy to our friends and allies. We'll stop buying it from our adversaries. We'll be selling food to our friends and allies as opposed to you know letting them become dependent on other sources. And and China's with their Belt and Road Initiative, they've you know tried to build infrastructure and put their fingers into into uh, the Western Hemisphere, South America, Africa. I mean, they've basically been doing a strategy to try to play for the long term, where the U.S. has has had an opportunity because of our resources, because of our productivity that's being missed. And I think that's a it's a it's an interesting mix because you've got uh, you know populism and isolation on one end, you got the Democrats on the other end, and both of that's eroding uh, the prosperity of American future. If you, uh, uh, in, in addition to everything else, it's, it's empowering China, and, and, and this push to wind and solar, this fantasy push that we're going to somehow transition to wind and solar, the, the government statistics on this themselves say it's not going to happen. They continue to pretend that we're in this transition. And, the, and China has, has wrapped up key, uh, key aspects of the wind and solar market. So if we had Joe Biden here and we gave him truth serum and he just told us what he what he really thinks and he heard your arguments, what do you, what do you think he would say? Why is he doing this? Well, I'm, I'm not a pundit and I can't speculate. And as a governor, I've had a chance to... But you're you know, fighting with be, these guys, you know. So I am, but I've been I've been in the room. Think, but you're asking a specific head? question. Yeah, about okay, for, forget truth serum for yeah, the yeah. president right now. I've been, in, I've been in the room with I've been in the room with the guy, and he's you know struggling to answer ask the questions off the page that's written for him. So I don't know what that would be. That okay, could be so a separate uh, Barack episode. Obama, any just I, what what are they thinking? Because I don't I don't I don't actually believe. I used to be a Democrat. Okay. Until not that long ago, really, and I didn't want to destroy America. But the, and so I don't believe they want to destroy America. But the, but the, some of the positions they're taking are so demonstrably destructive to America. So I can't figure out what they're thinking anymore. I don't. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why. I want you to explain this. To me well, I, I can't figure it out either. It's one of the reasons I'm running is because I I believe that I believe in this country. You start out as an entrepreneur. I'm a small town. I mean, my dad was a World War II Navy vet. 
he, he fought in the Pacific. Half of the MIAs in all of American military history are World War II Navy sailors. He was, at, he was at Okinawa, 151 destroyers, 129 got hit by kamikazes. It's only by the grace of God I'm even sitting here. He made it all the way to Japan. Their, their ship was in Tokyo Bay when MacArthur was on the Missouri, you know, signing the total surrender of this totalitarian regime. And what did we do? MacArthur stuck around Japan for seven years, helped them write a constitution, turned them into the second largest you know, democratic economy in the world, second largest economy, but a, a thriving democracy, our biggest ally. I'm over there. I'm over there last fall and in a meeting on a trade mission because they need, like China, they need to import energy. They have almost no oil and gas. They need to import food. They have 126 million people living in the size of, of two Iowas. And they, uh, North Korea shot a missile over the top of the island while we're there. I mean, they shot a missile. Everyone's getting texts on our, our partners with the large Japanese trading company, this executive headquarters. They're getting texts that there's a missile coming. I've been in a lot of international business meetings. I've not been in one where we're getting texts that a missile's coming. But I think about where we're at right now where we're not supplying food and energy to these folks. I can't understand. I mean, we, we're shutting down energy production in Alaska that could be going to support the Philippines, South Korea, and Japan, as opposed to them being dependent on the Middle East. And then China now with the world's largest Navy, that all those ships would have to come through come through that. But I, I'm saying I, I went from this small startup. My dad died when I was freshman in high school. I mortgaged the land. I started a software company. At the time, we after going public, the time we got acquired, we had 2,000 people. We had people, 400 people working overseas. And later, I had thousands of people working for me overseas, people working for me that didn't have the right to vote, didn't have the right to assemble. I mean, I've seen what America greatness can do to not only help us be more prosperous, but lift up people around the world. And guess what? The best and the brightest want to come here. If we're going to win a Cold War with China, we've got to attract the talent and capital to come to our country. Instead, we're doing stuff that erodes our competitive advantage. I mean, we're killing our strength. China imports 10 million barrels of oil and gas a day. We had four members of the Biden administration that were over there this year, this summer. None of them are using American energy dominance as a tool in our Cold War negotiations with China. No, they're over there talking to them about CO2 emissions. China, world's largest polluter. You talked about solar and wind. If you get a, and now we're taking taxpayer dollars and subsidizing, the insanity continues. We're going to subsidize the the car purchases, we're going to subsidize the car companies. Of course, the UAW is going to go on strike. They didn't. They want a chunk of it, too. If we're going to subsidize the, the purchasers and the companies, and, and then and then you need two-thirds less jobs to produce an electric vehicle. So it's like the Biden administration is like, oh, I'm pro-union. No, we're going to wipe out a bunch of jobs in America <laughs> so we can buy batteries from China, which are made, by the way, along with the solar panels, made in a plant powered by coal. Because China's opening up a coal plant one a week. It used to be two a month. Now they're down to one a week. They're, they're the largest polluter in the world. And we're going to out. We're going to trade OPEC by going EV. We're going to go to Sinopec, and then we're going to get them from the world's largest polluter. I mean, so again, I'm like with you, Mike. I don't understand why that you can convince people that these policies help the environment when they do exactly the opposite. Because we're shifting the production to people that are bigger polluters than we are. If you cared about it. You'd want to have every ounce of energy and every electron produced in the United States. That would be do it because that would again stabilize the world, disempower other foreign dictators, help our economy, reduce inflation. It would all. I mean, it's saying so. Economy, energy, national security, completely intertwined. Uh, you've already referenced sitting in a business meeting with missiles flying overhead, which makes me immediately think of the events taking place in uh, 
in the Middle East right now, outside of uh, outside of Gaza. Uh, what, what what thoughts went through your mind when you saw the news breaking out of, uh, and, it's, and it's still breaking, and will be breaking for I think quite some time out of that uh, part of the world? And how would how would President Bergam uh, uh, handle this crisis setting? I'd like to think as president this would have never happened because we'd have the deterrence in place and we'd understand what the real source is going on here, which is Iran. But I mean, just say first to, to when you say what's breaking, part of what was breaking was my heart because I mean, to think about as a parent, I mean, to think about that uh, the atrocities that are unthinkable. I mean, a week ago, a week ago, I couldn't have thought that somehow I'd be seeing a news headline about, you know, babies being beheaded. I mean, I would not have ever thought that that was something I'd be seeing in, you know, that in that lifetime or people being shot in their homes by essentially death squads, you know, that are walking in or innocent people. I mean, that's, that's just, a, it's, it's uh, the bar, you know, the bar, how barbaric it is and, and how inhumane it is, is hard to comprehend. But when I say, well, I hope it would never happen. The way you end up not having a conflict, the way you keep Putin from invading Ukraine, the way you keep you know China out of Taiwan, and the way you keep a terrorist organization out of Israel is you actually have deterrence in place. What you don't do is do what the Biden administration has done, which is basically try to revive the whole you know, Obama, you know, Iran nuclear deal. That's what's been going on. That's why they released $10 million, $10 billion back in June that was must have been on page 34. I mean, it was nobody talked about that. And then now, you know, they try to sweep the $6 billion, quote, you know, hide it behind hostages. Who trades, you know, five for my team for five for your team, but I'll throw in $6 billion. I mean, all that did was accomplish was put the price on the head. I, the day they did it, I said, this is going to make kidnapping a super profitable business model for all organizations in all countries around the world. And what are we seeing, you know, as part of this weekend? They're kidnapping a bunch of people. I, I They're was, holding hostages. I, I was just looking at a clip from a, a Hamas official. Uh, he was being interviewed, and he said, well, look, the, the Americans just did a hostage deal with the Iranians. Why shouldn't they do it with us? Exactly. Exactly. I mean... The Which second is, is a very yeah, logical the, 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 the American second, passport yeah. just became the most dangerous passport to hold uh, in the world. No, I mean, and, and every every American student, every American tourist, every American business person has now just had a price tag put on their head, and the expectation is going to be: if you're a journalist, you guys are journalists. What about, you know, what about our friend from the Wall Street Journal in Russia? I mean, I, I think Putin's going to want more than 1.2 billion. I mean, it's. I mean, rule number one: don't negotiate with terrorists. And Biden effectively has been negotiating, not only negotiating, he's been giving them sweetheart deals, billions and billions of dollars. And the biggest one, I'm sorry to keep coming back to energy, but look at the oil exports from Iran this summer. Can yeah. somebody write a story about that? Because they're skyrocketing. And who's filling up their strategic petroleum reserve? China. Who's buying a bunch of you know oil from, I, I, or, I, from, from Iran? China. I like it that you're on energy. The, did you see the cable? that was uh, leaked out early on in the Biden administration uh, to all posts, State Department cable, to all posts saying, we will not support any new fossil fuels initiative. Globally, not, 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 just, not just domestically. It, and it immediately empowers Iran and Russia. In Venezuela. I don't right. think Governor yeah. Burgum's State Department, uh, if he's yeah. elected no, president. No, we don't do that. But I mean, but Mike, you said earlier you talked about the fantasy about an energy transition. And again, if anybody would look at a piece of data, there is no energy transition. And it's I'm I'm for clean air, clean water, clean soil health. Guess what? Because I'm a farmer and rancher and multi generational, and you care. Nobody cares about the land and the air, the air and the water than the people that are on the land. And that's 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 all of us, right? 
But why do they say there's no energy transition? Because of the data. In the 1980s, 82% of the world's energy was being produced by oil and gas, by fossil fuels. And now, here we are in 2023, 82%. Okay, But the number's gone up because the global population has gone up. Energy demands have gone up. It's going to be 82% by the day I die. In 2050 or whatever, pick some number. It's, It's not. It's an energy addition. It's not energy transition because we've added renewables, solar and wind. We add that. We've built them. We've subsidized them at record levels, but it hasn't dis- destroyed the demand because the demand for energy. China's not building a power coal power plant every week because they're bad people. They're doing it because they've got part of their population that doesn't even have electricity. Okay, so then are we going to tell them don't electrify your country like we did in the 1930s? No, they're going to say, what are you talking about? We're doing this. I mean, there's no there's no climate accord they're going to listen to when the choice is electricity for their people or not. So it is a fantasy that somehow that this is the thing. But but we 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 do have it. We do have the opportunity with energy dominance and food dominance to actually have playing cards that we can play with countries like China that have got super high in youth unemployment. They've got an overhang of debt. They got a real estate crisis. They've got a small percentage of the people that are actually in the CCP and the party versus the general population, and they're at, at risk from increases in, in productivity. Right now in the U.S., we have 10 million jobs open. 10 million jobs open. We can't fill. They've got workers. They got more workers than they have jobs. We've got more jobs than we have workers. In a country in that position, what's our other tool? AI. We can take a productivity tool like AI. We can drive productivity. We can eliminate. Uh, we can eliminate some of the drudgery and soul sucking, mind numbing work in every government job and every private sector job with AI. You can do that. Raise the standard of living in our country. And if they introduce AI, when right now when they've got this high unemployment and they get more productive, that's like that's like they, they've got to be terrified. That's like revolution style thing happens if you take work away from people that don't have work. Peter and I are afraid that AI is going to take us out of our jobs. So I don't think so. I hope not. AI is not that good looking. It's like uh, a, yeah, yeah. That's a, this they, is why this is a video less podcast. A, yeah, that's why that's why they have me around here. It's, yeah, we have a, we have a face for right. radio, as they yeah. say. Um, so two themes I, I've I've heard, um, Governor, that animate your presidential campaign. One is establishing deterrence against our adversaries, be it the Iranians in the Middle East, the Russians in Europe, China over Taiwan. A second being unleashing American energy dominance. Can you fill out a little bit more some of your main foreign policy priority or themes uh, beyond those two? Well, th- those are the those are key. But part of the way you fund all that stuff is you got to get the economy going. And we've got the way all this happens. I mean, the way we strengthen our military, I mean, the military economically, say we spend close to it, it's 800, 850 on defense, but call it a trillion. You know, what, what 15% of that actually goes into acquiring weapons, and the rest is, you know, healthcare and veterans. I mean, it's all these other things that are must do, we have to do, but it's everyone's like, oh, the budget is so big. When we won the Cold War against uh, Russia, you know, in the Reagan era, we were spending six and a half percent of GDP on on defense. Now we're, you know, we're lucky if we're, you know, spending three percent. So we we've got to figure out a way to get our economy going. So it isn't a guns or butters thing. We one way you increase everything is you just get the economy growing faster. And we've got so much red tape. I mean, I'm talking to a, a small defense contractor the other day. I mean, he estimates that forty percent of defense contractors have gone out of business or can't supply the defense contract. You can't. F- 
even apply or get through an RFP because guess what? It's all tilted towards the biggest players. Mm -hmm. And so when we have this kind of consolidation, you lose competition, you lose innovation in any market where the government gets involved, like healthcare, like higher education, you end up with $1.6 trillion of debt and we don't have smarter graduates. We just have more debt. And so there has to be a way to streamline and cut the red tape. And in North Dakota, we passed 51 more red tape reduction bills this year. There's just no end to how you can cut that out. We were crowdsourcing ideas from the public. In a Bergam administration, we'd be like, if you want to get this economy going, not only we got to balance the budget, manage the federal debt, but we got to get rid of the red tape so we can start looking at GDP growth of 5% a year. And people say that's not possible. It's totally possible. In North Dakota, we got the highest GDP of any Republican-led state in the nation, and it, it continues to scale up because our whole mantra every day is innovation, not regulation. And that's how that's how this country has always succeeded. That's how we're going to win in the future, and that's how it's going to it's going to help us with foreign policy and defense because we've got to do diplomatic, informational. We're in a cyber war every day, by the way, too. That's another thing I should just mention because we're. When I became governor, I realized, man, we're getting attacked every day by the North Koreans, the Russians, the. Iranians and the Chinese, the same four people that are all in the news today are the ones that were attacking us cyber-wise. So this battle's been going on, and not, in a, and not like in a, in a way that is sort of, oh, they're, they're doing ransomware for a 1000 bucks. We had the North Koreans in a K-12 school district in North Dakota. This has been declassified in a K-12 school district. Why would they be? Why would the North Koreans pay someone to get up in the morning to try to get into the grades, the grade, the power school, the grade system, for a K-12 school system you know, near the Canadian border that has like 200 kids, so think like 20 per class. Well, they would do that because they knew that the parents of those kids were on a permanent assignment, federal assignment. They're North Dakota National Guard men and women mm -hmm. protecting the 150 ballistic missiles that we have in North oh. Dakota. So they were trying to get into the school system, get the emails, get into the thread from there back to the personal computers of the parents that work for the North Dakota National Guard to see if on their computers they might have a password or something related to our, our mm -hmm. initial, de initial defense. So we are getting attacked every day in nefarious ways by these countries, and we're not spending enough on that front either because we don't have, and no one is, we've never even had a candidate who's run for president who has ever worked a day in technology. I spent a career in that, and technology is changing every job, every company, every industry. It has to change the military, and we have to have the acceleration that we've had in these other industries where we can speed up how we get procurement. I mean, telling Taiwan that we're going to send harpoon missiles to them in 2028 is like basically sending a, a, a green light to China, which is you better invade before, before then, 2028. Yeah. I mean, come before we send. I mean, I'd like to be in a spot where we announce, oh, yesterday we spent, oh, oh, I forgot to tell you, yesterday we sent a bunch of harpoon missiles to Taiwan. Oh, did we forget to mention that? Oh, they're already there. That's a deterrent. This thing right now is an invitation. Right. It's an invitation. It's not a deterrent. You know, um, uh, on the populist right, we're seeing uh, more and more arguments uh, about, for example, Israel and Hamas and United States position in Middle East, the Iran deal, we're we're seeing more and more arguments that mirror the arguments on the on the progressive left. I was uh, uh, listening to Tucker Carlson and um, Vivek Ramaswamy uh, night before last, and uh, on the issue of Israel and Hamas, they were tepid very tepid. Uh, Tucker Carlson admitted that raping uh, girls and next to the carcasses of their uh, of their dead friends 
um, was a bad thing. He admitted that, but but he said, but but we have to ask, you know, what's the American interest here and, and so forth. As somebody who doesn't come from the coastal elites and who's in touch daily with uh, with average American voters in the in the heartland, how deep is that kind of thinking? You think in the in the Republican Party now is that is that something we have to be really worried about? Is this really reflecting a an opinion on the ground, or is this uh, is this more limited? I think there's a, a segment that has been led to believe that somehow uh, America First means isolationism. It means withdrawing from whatever. It means that we can't you know secure the southern border, which we must do as part of national security, uh, and and support our allies uh, in Ukraine or in Israel. Uh, and so that they, it's a false trade-off. But those those are completely false trade-offs. And they've been led to believe that somehow we'll be more prosperous if we abandon our allies. And none of that is true, of course. We'll be less prosperous. Half of our economy is related to foreign trade and and so if you want to if you want to take a haircut if everybody in America wants to have their standard of living reduced in half well then we could try we could just try saying look we're going to abandon all these relationships and we'll let you know the next 100 years be dominated by uh, a trading partnership with China as opposed to the and let them be the number one economy in the world as opposed to all the benefits that Americans have received because we've had the number one economy and because we've had the ability to trade uh, with others and I'm I'm not, I I'm against you know people that dump product into it. I want fair trading practices, but I've competed globally. I know that you can create the framework to do it, and I know when we do it and do it well, then we benefit and every American benefits. So someone is not telling the story, and of course, the biggest bully pulpit in the country is Joe Biden, and Joe Biden not using the bully pulpit. He's not articulating uh, any, any of this this stuff, and I, I it's like I... It used to be something that you would think that, that the president had a responsibility, regardless right. of what party they're in, to tell the story of how American American power overseas was benefiting every American. And I think it was, you know, clearly obvious. I mean, look, look. I mean, anybody that's prospered in our country since World War II benefited from the, ex- the tre- tremendous cost. I mean, the the sacrifice of these world of World War II uh, that we did. I mean, and then there were some bad examples between that where people got soured on on our use of force. But it, at the fundamental level, this is key to to our planet achieving its potential. Do, do you do you find when you're talking to uh, to average voters? who are inclined to start entertaining some of these more, uh, for lack of a better word, um, uh, I don't know, restraintist, let's call them, these restraintist positions, uh, do you find that, that, that they listen to you when you make these arguments and they can be persuaded? How concerned are you about this, this strain of thinking? The average voter that's trying to figure out how to put food on the table and gas in their car and, and finding that their costs are up 700 bucks a month since Joe Biden took office. They're actually, they're, they're more worried about economic security. And so then if someone plants in their mind that, wow, if we spend this money, you know, with supporting Israel or supporting Ukraine, it's going to somehow hurt them, then that's where their concern is. It's not really about foreign policy. It's about economic security. So we have to make sure that we help them understand that their economic security will be stronger, better, safer, and they'll be more prosperous. Our country will be more prosperous if we solve these issues. But again, the six, you know, the $6 billion may have already been, you know, unfrozen and Iran's already taken it. If it hasn't, you know, that's more... That's almost like two years of support for Israel. I mean, like, let's 
instead of giving it to the guys that are building nuclear weapons and funding terrorism at a higher level, more state-sponsored terrorism than anybody else, why don't we give it to the people that are actually defending democracy? Right. I mean, that have been our have been our staunch partners, and let's do that. There's no wavering on my point of view, but I'm driven. I'm driven by an understanding of economics, and I'm driven by the idea that uh, that uh, America America first to me means. America first to me means that we, when we support our allies, we prosper and they prosper. That's how you achieve it. I mean, it's a false, it's a completely false trade-off. Governor, I know we're close to running out of time. So one final question from me, and then I think Mike will ask you for a recommendation on who to vote for for president um, this, uh, this cycle. But we've mentioned a lot of, uh, a lot of our challengers and adversaries, uh, the Iranians, the Chinese, the Russians. Suppose we could add the Venezuelans in and a few others the DPRK, the North Koreans hacking North Dakotan schools. I would hypothesize, or I'd say one of the kind of leitmotifs or driving theories behind our work here at Hudson Institute is that these aren't all discrete individual separate challenges, but there are links between them. Um, Would you subscribe to that view? How do you interpret or see the relationship between these actors that are coming after the United States and the American-built system? Completely linked. And what's shocking to me is I'm standing on a debate stage with people that say basically like let's you know let's give up Ukraine because our real issue is China. I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, our the failed sanctions of the Biden administration turned turned you know Russia into China's discount gas station. You know that's what happened, and that's benefiting them. I mean, people and I would like to get you know diesel at 20% off for their tractor tomorrow, and the and the lobsterman in New Hampshire would like that. But no, we we gave that to China because of these failed sanctions. So it is they're absolutely totally linked. And I mean, there have been 40 meetings at a high level between Putin and Xi. I mean, what more do you need to know? They've got this unlimited partnership. Then you've got North Korea, you know, supplying weapons to Russia, who's then fighting against us. You have Iran supplying uh, drones to Russia, fighting against us. You've got Iranian, they're the parent company. Hamas and Hezbollah, they're the subsidiary. I mean, it's amazing to me that President Biden yesterday literally didn't even mention the word Iran during his first speech about the whole thing. Really, we're going to just, we're going to like, you know, worry about the subsidiary? No, you go after the parent company that's providing all the funding. That's what you have to do. They're actually, the White House, is the administration is running a little campaign. Uh, to say that there's no evidence that Iran is uh, directly involved in the events of uh, a Hamas attack on Israel. So you've asked me some questions. Can I ask you why would they say that? I mean, what what's possible? What oh, that's that's easy. I, I no, I have a superpower, which yes. I think I have bragged about on this yeah. podcast before. I know every thought that goes through Barack Obama's mind, and that's because we're the same age and we went to the same kind of schools and everything. Everybody thinks. Barack Hussein Obama, he's the, from some exotic place and has exotic thoughts. He thinks like an Ivy League professor. I spent a lot of time in the Ivy League. And, and all of that time in the Ivy League, a lot of it was wasted. But the good part was I know exactly what goes through their minds. And I can predict. And the, the, they, believe, they believe that uh, appeasement of Iran, they believe that, that uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia are forcing us to take positions against Iran uh, that are not in the American interest, the extreme positions, and that there's a there's an area of overlap between Iranian and American interests, and that if we are a little bit more friendly toward Iran and appease it a bit, 
we can we can develop relationships that will tamp down the the violence around the the, the region. So we were pushing Israel to cut deals with Hezbollah on the maritime border and then on the land border. Um, we did the same thing to the Saudis and the Emiratis with regard to the to the Houthis. Um, and so they they and they truly believe. If you look at Jake Sullivan recently had an interview with Rich Goldberg. Now, oh, I'm sorry, that's Rich Goldberg. It was Jeffrey Goldberg, his, his cousin, and uh, uh, and he was saying, oh, you know, it's so. Uh, we, we, we have really, uh, our, our policy of de-escalation, dialogue, and um, regional integration has really quieted uh, everything down. And the theory is it's going to quiet everything down, and then we can, pivot to, uh, we can pivot to Asia. We don't have to have a big military footprint in the Middle East. They believe that. Wow. And then when Iran's hand shows up in a place like this, if they admit it, then they're going to be asked to do something about it. If they do something about it, then their whole policy falls apart. So. Great, great summary. And I was just going to ask, how's this working out for them? They, they still think it's working out because they they think that there was a, a senior official. I'm sure it was uh, Brett McGurk, uh, but I don't know that for a fact. Uh, it was quoted in an AP story saying that um, if um, uh, that they sent a message to Iran after Hamas attacked Israel, they sent a message to Iran that uh, that Iran shouldn't do anything because if they do, it will jeopardize future joint initiatives. So it tells yep. you what they're what yep. they're what they're thinking. They're thinking about cooperation with Iran. So they think that, that they think that this relationship that they have with Iran is somehow helping with these with the with the violence. Yep. And that's why I remember rule that's number one: don't negotiate with terrorists. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've just described that they're trying to do that. And of course, again, I, I the Iranian people that are trapped under this regime. I mean, the regime they've got. I mean, they've got two goals: death to America, death to Israel. And by the way, we need a nuclear weapon to accomplish that. Uh, so that's what we're up against, and now we've seen the true face of that, um, it, which is true evil, and and I think it's, uh, again, one of the reasons why I'm running. That's why we've got to have somebody that's clear-eyed about the threats in this world and understands how the world economy works, understands how that's tied, and how America can prosper when, when we and our allies are both are all safe. Peter said I was going to ask you who, you should, who uh, we should vote for. I think I know that, but just tell me. Ronald Reagan, they say, focused on just three things. What, what are the three things you're going to vote? Number one is get rid of the red tape. You already said right. unleash the economy, unleash the energy. What else? Economy, energy, national security. What, mean, is the, what is the national security? What are you going to do? What's, 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 what, well, on day one, day, what are you going to do? One, well, we've got all the global things we have to take care of, but we've got a brew, brewing issue at home because you can't let – now, 8 million people have come into this country. National security is border security. 8 million people have come in under Joe Biden. And, and it's hard for people to get their head around that, but it's, it's every man, woman, and child in Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Joe Biden's home state of Delaware, throw in Montana, and then you got to throw in another state now for the known gotaways. That's a million and a half. Six and a half million have got asylum papers, have come into our country, but not... And when we say that, they cross. Everybody thinks, "Oh, these are Latin American poor families that that are, you know, looking for a better life." When I was down there, and I've been to the border more times than Joe Biden. We've had troops down there from the North Dakota National Guard, not just guarding the border, but also flying night helicopter missions, trying to stop these transnational criminal organizations who have shipped enough fentanyl in our country where we've lost the equivalent of five Vietnams in the period of time that Joe Biden has been in office. And down there, but it is. The sector I was at, they'd come from over 100 countries, including everybody that we've talked about today on this thing. The people that are threats to America are coming in, people on the terrorist watch list that that are coming across, but they have have an adolescent with them. And under the Biden administration, oh, we can't do family separation. So here's your papers. Welcome to America. I mean, they're making America less safe. We we could have the kind of Hamas infiltration. You're going to build a wall. Well— 
It has to be more than that. It's got to be diplomatic, informational, military, economic. It's got to be everything to be able to do that. But I know that our Border Patrol, if given the tools and the technology and the resources, they've secured the border before, they can secure it again. But they're fighting against organizations that have more money on the other side. Mm. The, the drone technology, the information, the, the, the basically the on-the-ground, I mean, call them spies, but the cartels are super well-informed, and they're extracting tens of millions of dollars a week from these immigrants that are coming up. So they're, they, they've got more funding. they got more funding than our Border Patrol. I mean, we're defunding our police, and they're making, they're, and they've got multi-billion-dollar criminal organizations are running the ops on the other side. I mean, we're up against an enemy, and we just have to we have to be clear-eyed and understand who we're up against, and then go solve it. And I'm ready to yeah. vote for you. Except <laughs> you this this advisor you got, Rich Goldberg, he's a problem. <laughs> who, who's who, who's in the room and says hello to all of our listeners, Governor? Thanks so much for joining us. If if we want to learn more about uh, your campaign, uh, where where should we head online? Uh, DougBrigham.com. Uh, would love to have people support volunteer come and learn more about us uh, uh, we're going to we're going to be on the ballot in iowa new hampshire and so uh, help us send a message thank you sir thank you thanks for listening to this edition of counterbalance we're back in action please like and subscribe if you enjoyed today's conversation and we will see you soon at a podcast near you bye bye and thank you